has been explaining so many discourses of the Buddha by now. We are on the 42nd tape that um, I thought um, not only for your but also for my uh, edification because it's um, getting a bit much as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I've been I've been teaching steadily since the 10th of January, and uh, I'm getting about to the end of my my uh, capacities. I think um, I'm going to read you something which I find extremely interesting. Uh, it's um, the uh, prayers of Saint Teresa of Avila. And I'm quite sure, I I won't say anything about it now, but I'm sure that after I've read you this, that you will know why I'm reading it, and you will understand what the connection is. I'm quite sure that everybody must um, um, realize it. If not, I'll be happy to explain. Uh, does everybody know who Saint Teresa of Avila was? Does anybody not know? Um, a Catholic nun. Okay, I'll tell you who she was. Um, was born in 1515 in the Spanish town of Avila. Her name was Teresa de Cepeda Iahumada. That was her name she was born under. Um, Two years after she was born, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses against indulgences to the church door of Wittenberg. In other words, Protestantism started. Um, And in so doing, heralded the Protestant Reformation, which was to split Western Christendom in, in two. At first, the Roman Catholic Church did not take the German revolt very seriously. After all, there had been other revolts which had come to nothing. Twenty years later, it had become clear that a more dangerous attack against the unity of the Church than ever before had been launched. And the response of the Roman Church to the Protestant Reformation is known as the Counter-Reformation. It is the, um, the roots of that counter-reformation in the, were in the reform of the Spanish Church. And it was in Spain that there was a flowering of the mystical life equal to that which had flourished in earlier centuries in Germany. Now, the outstanding figures of that mystical life were St. Teresa of Avila, Sometimes she was named also Teresa of Jesus and St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross and Teresa were well known to each other and at some stage Teresa was teaching St. John, at some stage St. John was teaching Teresa. These two were intimately associated in the work of the reform of the Carmelite order. Yet how different they are. St. John of the Cross, the mystic's mystic, was withdrawn, austere, of brilliant and keen intellect, a poet who is numbered among the great poets of Spain, 
Teresa was a typical woman, practical and vigorous, humorous and attractive, a born leader and organizer, and at the same time a contemplative saint whose writings on the spiritual life stand high in the literature of mysticism. Until her death in 1582, her life was one of intense activity of struggles with the religious authorities to allow her to carry out the work of the reform of the Carmelite order to which she felt herself called by God, of weary journeying over wild and difficult country, of the founding of convent after convent, of intense literary activity, her books and letters fill five volumes. <laughs> and on top of all that, she was Jewish. <laughs> uh, she was what was called a converse, so her, her, her father had been um, converted. But that was due to the fact that, I don't know if you remember your Jewish history, but at that time in Spain, uh, they were practically forced to convert. Uh, some of them did not, and um, they were actually hiding in the, in the uh, caves. And, um, and I can just think a moment, I might remember their name. Do you remember their name? Ma, ma, with an M. Anyway, there was a great movement that Jews should convert to, to Catholicism, and so her father had, and so she was called a conversal, a converted one. So she was a Jewish Catholic nun. Her greatest work is the interior castle out of those uh, five volumes, uh, in which she describes the seven mansions through which the soul passes on its way from purgation to union. I have a high as I have, that's the uh, writer of this book, decided, however, to let her speak through the chapters of her life. She wrote an autobiography. One of the most charmingly intimate and self-revealing spiritual autobiographies ever written, in which she describes from her own experience the degrees of prayer. She is struggling to put down as exactly as possible the character of the experiences she is trying to describe. This results in a certain diffuseness and repetition, very different from the extreme precision of St. John of the Cross, but as one realizes when one compares these passages with those of St. John of the Cross. It is her naivete, the refusal to be clever or learned, the extremely humble effort to be as truthful as possible, which give the writings of St. Teresa not only their charm, but also their particular value and effectiveness, especially for one who desires to enter on at least the earlier stages of mystical prayer. So now, she, as you heard before, seven, ma uh, seven uh, mansions, that she calls it seven mansions. Now, this is what I've read so far is all by the writer of this book. Now he lets her speak for herself the four degrees or stages of prayer. I shall have to make use of a comparison, though, this you're gonna love, though being a woman and writing only what I've been commanded to write, I should like to avoid it. Why a woman should that avoid that, we don't know anymore. But in those days, I think women had a totally different um, outlook on themselves. But this spiritual language is so difficult to use for those like myself who have no learning, 
but I must find some other means of expression. It may be that my comparisons will not very often be effective, in which case your reverence, she's uh, addressing uh, her uh, confessor, will be amused at my stupidity. <coughs> it strikes me that I've read or heard this one before, but as I have a bad memory, I do not know where it occurred or what it illustrated. She's talking about the simile. But for the present, it will serve my purpose. Now, the simile is uh, also, I think those of you who have had courses with me will recognize it. A beginner must look on himself as one setting out to make a garden for his Lord's pleasure on most unfruitful soil, which abounds in weeds. His majesty, now, when she says his majesty, she's talking about Jesus. She's called him his majesty. His majesty roots up the weeds and will put in good plants instead. Let us reckon that this is already done when a soul decides to practice prayer and has begun to do so. We have then, as good gardeners, with God's help, to make these plants grow and to water them carefully so that they do not die but produce flowers which give out a good smell to delight this Lord of ours. Then he will often come to take his pleasure in this garden and enjoy these virtues. Now obviously we've got Christian terminology here and Christian thought system, but other than that, we've got something which is exactly, well, I'll let you decide for yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> now let us see, now, now she has something which is quite interesting. Now let us see how this garden is to be watered, so that we may understand what we have to do, and what labor it will cost us, also whether the gain will outweigh the effort, or how long it will take. It seems to me that the garden may be watered in four different ways. Either the water must be drawn from a well, which is very laborious, or by a water wheel and bucket, worked by a windlass. I have sometimes drawn it in this way, which is less laborious than the other and brings up more water. That's her second way of watering the garden. Or from a stream or spring, which waters the ground much better, for the soil then retains more moisture and needs watering less often, which entails far less work for the gardener. Or by heavy rain, when the Lord waters it himself without any labor of ours, and this is an incomparably better method than all the rest. Now to apply these four methods of watering by which this garden is to be maintained and without which it will fail. This is my purpose and will, I think, enable me to explain something about the four stages of prayer to which the Lord has, in his kindness, sometimes raised my soul. All right, now she starts on her first stage. First degree, it's called. Well, one mustn't forget this has been translated from Spanish, but anyway... Uh, Spanish and English are not that different. So on the first degree of prayer, we may say that beginners in prayer, and you can easily uh, uh, transform the word prayer into meditation, there's no difference. And we may say that beginners in prayer are those who draw the water up out of the well, laborious in the beginning, to say the least, which is a great labor, as I have said for they find it very tiring to keep the senses recollected when they are used to a life of distraction. 
Beginners have to accustom themselves to pay no attention to what they see or hear and to put this exercise into practice during their hours of prayer when they must remain in solitude, thinking whilst they are alone of their past life. Although all must do this many times, the advanced as well as the beginners all need not do so equally, as I shall explain later. At first they are distressed because they are not sure that they regret their sins. Yet clearly they do, since they have now sincerely resolved to serve God. They should endeavor to meditate on the life of Christ, and thus the intellect will grow tired. This is interesting, because she says now meditating, and then the intellect will grow tired. Um, we often uh, hear that this, if we let the mind, if we label and let the mind think, 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 it will grow tired of all this thinking. Up to this point, we can advance ourselves. So with God's help, of course, for without it, as everyone knows, we cannot think one good thought. But we shall... Sorry. But what shall a man do here who finds that for many days on end he feels nothing but dryness, dislike, distaste, and so little desire to go and draw water that he would give it up altogether if he did not remember that he is pleasing and serving the Lord of the garden. Now that's a pretty good one because people do give up meditation because nothing happened and they don't have this kind of thing that they can remember to serve somebody with it. If he did not want all his service to be in vain and if he did not also hope to gain something for all the labor of lowering the bucket so often into the well and bringing it up empty. It will often happen that he cannot so much as raise his arms to the task or think a single good thought, for by this drawing of water I mean, of course, working with the understanding. Obviously, what she's talking about here must be something of an, um, an insight thing that nothing happens, the dryness, the dislike and the distaste is the, um, what uh, St. John of the Cross coins the sentence, the dark night of the soul, nothing happens at all. It doesn't have any, nothing is happening. Well, meditators know that very well, don't they? I mean, nothing happens. So one sits and one sits and one sits. I have one student who's been sitting for 21 years until he finally got to somewhere. But that was only one. <laughs> Martinus. But uh, the, so that is dryness um, <coughs> and even distaste. And then there's no desire to go and meditate, draw water, and would give it up altogether if one didn't remember that one is pleasing the Lord. Well, we don't have that kind of thing. So people do give it up. And then there is. Um, there's the hope to gain something for all this labor. And there seems to be what she's talking about is there's a, not so much as raising the arm to the task. There doesn't seem to be any motivation, no incentive. The urgency is gone. Some vega. And one can't think a single good thought. Everything goes 
looks hopeless. And for by this drawing of water, she means, she says, I mean, of course, working with the understanding. I'm not quite sure what she means with this working with the understanding. It must mean inside the understanding. But what is she understanding at this time? The drawing of water. The drawing of water is the watering of the of the of this garden. It's calm, isn't it? Well, what I repeat shall the gardener do now? He shall be glad and take comfort and consider it the greatest favor that he's working in the garden of so mighty a majesty. He knows that he's pleasing his master in this, and his purpose must be to please him and not himself. Let him praise him greatly for having placed such trust in him and for seeing that though he receives no payment, he's carefully carrying out the task assigned to him. So what she's talking about is that because one gets us no reward, one is still doing it. These labors bring their reward. I endured them for many years. And when I drew one drop of water from this blessed well, I thought of it as a mercy. I know that they are very great labors and that more courage is needed for them than for most worldly trials. But I have clearly seen that God does not fail to reward them highly even in this life. A single one of those hours in which he has allowed me to taste of his sweetness has seemed to me afterwards a certain recompense for all the afflictions I bore during my long perseverance in prayer. Well, I would say it took a long time to get to the first jhana. <laughs> well, finally she got some sweetness there. So she endured and she endured. Now, on the second degree of prayer, having spoken of the effort and physical labor entailed in watering the garden, and what efforts it costs to raise the water from the well, let us now turn to the second method of drawing it, which the owner of the plot has ordained. By means of a device with a windlass, the gardener draws more water with less labor, and so is able to take some rest, instead of being continuously at work. I apply this description to the prayer of quiet, which I am now going to describe. It's the second degree, the prayer of quiet. Now the soul, the mind, begins to be recollected, and here it comes into touch with the supernatural, to which it could not possibly attain by his own efforts. True, sometimes it seems to have grown weary through turning the wheel and turning with its mind and filling the buckets, but in this state the level of the water is higher and so much less labor is required than for drawing it from the well. I mean that the water is closer because grace reveals itself more clearly to the soul. This entails a gathering of the faculties within oneself so as to derive a greater savor from that pleasure. But they are not lost or asleep. One the person who is doing it. The will alone is occupied in such a way that it is unconsciously taken captive. It simply consents to be a prisoner since it well knows how to surrender to one whom it loves. The other two faculties, the memory and the imagination, help the will to make itself more and more capable of enjoying this great blessing, though on the other hand it sometimes happens 
that there are a great hindrance to it, even when the will is in union, but then it should never pay attention to them, but stay in its joy and quiet. For if it tried to make them recollect it, both it and they might lose away. Everything that happens now brings very great consolation and costs so little labor that even if prayer is continued for some time, it brings no weariness. The intellect now works very gently and draws up a great deal more water than it drew from the well. Well, this water business apparently is uh, inside. On arriving at this state, the soul begins to lose the desire for earthly The soul begins to lose the desire for earthly things, and no wonder. It clearly sees that not even one moment of this joy is to be obtained here on earth, and that there are no riches, estates, honors, or delights that can give it such satisfaction even for the twinkling of an eye. For this is the true joy, the content that can be seen to satisfy. Those of us who are on earth, it seems to me, rarely understand where this satisfaction lies. It is always up and down. First, first we have it, then it leaves us, and we find that it has all gone, and that we cannot get it back, since we have no idea how to do so. This satisfaction lodges in the innermost part of the soul, which does not know whence nor how it came. Often it does not even know what to do or wish to or ask for. It seems to find everything at once and yet not to know how, what it has found. I do not know how to explain this. I very much wish the Lord would help me to describe the effects of these things on the soul now that they begin to be supernatural so that men may know by the result whether they are from the Spirit of God. I mean that I would have them know in so far as anything can be known here below, for it is always well to proceed with fear and caution. Even if they are from God, the devil can at times transform himself into an angel of light, and if the soul is not very experienced, it will not realize this. To realize this, indeed, it must have so much experience that it must have attained to the very summit of prayer. Before I, before I go any further with this do you know what she's describing? obviously second genre that she's describing I mean, there's no question about it so the, uh, the reason I have brought this here and to read first of all um, I very much like the way she writes maybe being a woman and secondly, uh, the main reason is that all mystics in all traditions, in all religions, have always done the same thing. But they've used verbiage which was according to their own tradition. And they've used the kind of um, um, similes and uh, pictures that had some reference to their own tradition. 
So if uh, a vision was seen by a Christian mystic, it would have been uh, the Holy Mary or it would have been Jesus. But if a vision is seen by a, by a Buddhist mystic, it would have been a Deva or Bodhisattva or something like that. So, but if you, if you have listened to what she has to say on the second degree of prayer, which is much more uh, conclusive than the first one. The first one she seemed to have so much trouble with that um, it wasn't as conclusive. But the second one, one begins to lose the desire for earthly things. The joy of the second jhana makes it quite clear that there isn't any moment of this joy to be obtained in the world. Here she says, it clearly sees that not even one moment of this joy is to be obtained here on earth. And that there's nothing that can give that satisfaction. So it has always been um, a feature of the second jhana of the inner joy, and that's why one should never go past this, uh, even if one is impatient to get any to get further. And it's always been a feature of it that it makes it quite clear that the world has nothing to offer which can compare to it, nowhere. And because of that, the um, desires become much, much less and the um, the enjoyment which one does have from one's essential contacts is far purer. It has a totally different uh, context in it because before when there hasn't been anything else to enjoy the sense pleasure is the only thing one has and when it's the only thing one has one has the great expectation that they are supposed to do something for one which is final, a final solution they're supposed to give. But they'd never do. They are very, they're very fleeting. They never give a final solution. So one is constantly disappointed in them and has to get a new one. And there's, everybody has sort of like their pet desire. And that pet desire has to be repeated and repeated and repeated until finally the mind says, well, that's enough now. I'll try another pet. And so one, one has to, one is very busy with this. But having gone through at least second jhana, one has, it doesn't mean that one has no more enjoyment of essential uh, contact. But because the expectation is gone, and because the search for them is gone, when they do appear, they have a purity with them which makes the enjoyment um, not, not, I wouldn't say that it makes it much deeper, but it just makes it, has, has, doesn't have any strings attached. Because there's no strings attached, it's easy. One, one doesn't have anything that is grasping and clinging with it. It's an easy thing to do. One enjoys whatever there is. And the enjoyment of whatever there is, is always cushioned by that knowledge of inner joy, so that there's no difficulty, really to have the inner joy with one. So this is what she's explaining about the second degree of prayer. And I think that it is for those of, um, of people who do the jhanas, and it's not that difficult to do, is it? Um, quite interesting to know. In fact, I found it absolutely fascinating to know. I don't know if other people agree with this. That that is the path of the mystic. There's no mystery to being a mystic. All you have to do is do the jhanas because, <laughs> because they are 
different levels of consciousness. And they change their inner consciousness, of course. They can't help it. I mean, there's no way that the way the mind goes does not change the content, content of mind. And especially in Teresa's words, I have read little of St. John of the Cross, but I've read a lot of Eckhart, Master Eckhart, because I, I studied him because I give a talk. Master Eckhart meets the Buddha at, uh, in England. Um, so I, I really studied him and I stu- have studied her because I enjoy her very much. Especially St. Teresa's writing are easy because she uses the simplest of language. But Eckhart is very difficult. He says exactly the same thing, but it's so difficult to understand that it, one really has to uh, sit down with it and go through it. But this is obvious. I mean, there's no question what she's saying. The, the first jhana is, she's a single one of those hours in which he has allowed me to taste of his sweetness has seemed to me afterwards a certain recompense for all the afflictions I bore during my long perseverance in prayer. Well, most people, there are always those memorable exceptions, but most people do need time. Um, what did she say? She, I think years. I endured them for many years. Well, most people do need time till they can get into first jhana. And that's what happened to her. She had, you know, took her a long time. She had to really labor at it. But then, this is interesting also, Vitaka Vichara, initial application and sustained application are only features of first jhana. In second, not necessary anymore. So here she says, Here, by means of the device of the windlass, the gardener draws more water with less labor and so is able to take some rest instead of being continuously at work. So, in the beginning, one has to apply to the meditation subject, which is the initial application, and one has to sustain that application, but for second jhana, that's no longer necessary. So it's the same thing. One doesn't have to be continuously at work. The soul, the mind, begins to be recollected instead. It comes together. And when she calls it the supernatural, of course, the jhanas are worldly, are not supernatural. But uh, in those days of Teresa de Villa, um, women were not educated. And uh, they did have books, uh, Spanish books. I've read her life story. Um, They did have Spanish books of um, religious books. And then one day a degree came that they're no longer allowed to read. So um, they didn't even have those then anymore. They didn't have that many in the first place. So, and they have much less labor required in, in, this, in this second stage because the mind is already recollected. Huh? Let's see what else she says about that. This quiet and recollection of the soul manifests itself largely in the peace and satisfaction, the very joy and repose of the faculties, and the most sweet delight that it brings with it. Well, it's obviously that she's describing second jhana, isn't it? 
As the soul has never gone beyond this stage, it thinks that there's nothing left to devour. Both contented. Left nothing left to devour, and would, like St. Peter, gladly make its home here. Now this is a great danger, which happens over and over again in those traditions where there isn't any definite teaching on it, because this is supposed to happen by grace, and there's no definite teaching on it, that one gets stuck, because it's so nice. So she says that, she's aware of that, one would gladly make one's home there. It, the, the mind or the soul, it dares not move or stir for fear that this blessing may slip through its fingers. Sometimes it's even afraid to breathe. The poor creature is not aware that just as it could do any, sorry, just as it could do nothing to acquire this blessing, so it is still less able to hold it any longer than the Lord wishes. I have already said that in this first recollection and stillness the powers of the soul are not suspended. But the soul is so, you have to always think of soul as mind because that's what we use, the word mind. Huh? But the soul is so replete that although two of its faculties may be distracted, yet so long as recollection lasts, peace and quiet are not lost. Since the will is in union with God. On the contrary, the will gradually calls the intellect and the memory back again. Although it's not yet completely absorbed, same words even, it is so occupied without knowing with what, she should come to an interview, that whatever efforts the distracted faculties may make, they cannot rob it of its joy and contentment. So this, the distracted faculties apparently in, in what she's talking about are intellect and the memory. And so which is quite true. In second jhana, there are still thoughts arising. They are quite um, fleeting and they are very um, wispy, but they can arise. So she's quite right what she's saying. Interesting, isn't it? Intellect and memory she calls it, which is quite correct. So it's not completely absorbed. Second jhana is quite true, not completely absorbed. It's so occupied, without knowing with what, that whatever efforts the distracted faculties may make, they cannot rob the mind or the soul of its joy and contentment. In fact, it effortlessly helps to keep this little spark of love for God from going out. This prayer, then, is a spark of true love for him which the Lord begins to kindle in the soul. He wishes the soul to come to understand the nature of this love with its attendant joy. <laughs> the joy she's actually experiencing, the rest she's explaining. It's very interesting because she's obviously experiencing the joy. She's also experiencing the, the restfulness of that, the restfulness of the faculties. And she's also experiencing the contentment of it, which is going to be the next step. But then she explains it, of course, because she has to explain it that way. I mean, she was on the... Her, all her writings once were actually burned, and she had to rewrite the whole business. Um, and then there was such a to-do about it all that she was almost uh, put before the Inquisition, not quite. 
she was saved by some very influential um, friends that she had or they were like her pupils so she was saved by that but um, at one stage everything she had written was burned so she had to write it all over again and especially this one the life story I mean out of, out of which this is being quoted this is not her life story this is a book on mysticism which takes uh, par- uh, bits and pieces from everybody it just so happens that she's just explaining the first four jhanas so this prayer then oh, I read about that already so it keeps the love going <laughs> now you see the other thing is that of course because she has no nobody to teach her this she doesn't quite know this quiet and recollection and this little spark so long as it proceeds from the spirit of God and is not a sweetness given by the devil or induced by ourselves is not a thing that can be acquired as anyone who has experience of it must immediately realize but this nature of ours is so greedy from moments of sweetness that it seeks for them in every way but soon it becomes very cold for however much we try to kindle the fire in order to catch the sweetness we see merely to be pouring water on it and putting it out trying to get it (laughs) how often have I said give, don't get (laughs) it's very interesting isn't it you see Mary putting out now this God-given spark however tiny it may be causes a great noise and even uh, sorry and if we do not quench it through our own fault it begins to light the great fire which as I shall tell in due course throws out flames of that mighty love of God which is, with which his majesty endows the holes of the perfect she always has to come back to the um, dogma of the church because if she doesn't not a hope for this to be uh, even left for us to read because it would have all gone down the drain and I do think that because she's so honest I think she believes all this um, that um, that this is um, is induced through the love of God and if we could translate those words they induced through the love of God we could see that it is a complete giving of oneself she's completely giving her love and devotion and her faith she has complete faith and she's giving her love and devotion in other words she's giving herself to it completely and that's how it happens that she uses the um, uh, Christ and in interchange sometimes God sometimes Jesus uh, as her as her subject of devotion uh, is natural of course in her case what else would she be doing as a Catholic nun but that's not the point the point is her love and devotion and the complete faith and the complete giving that's how it ha- happens for her and because she th- thinks it happens because she has those subjects but as we know it doesn't come from that <laughs> but this is 400 years later almost 500 years no, 400 years later this little spark is a sign or pledge that God gives to this soul to show that he's already choosing it for great things if it will prepare itself to receive them it's a great gift far greater indeed than I can say 
All that the soul has to do at these times of quiet is merely to be calm and make no noise. In other words, stop thinking. By noise I mean working with the intellect. There we are, same thing, huh? To find great numbers of words and reflections with which to thank God for this blessing. In other words, don't find these words, huh? And piling up its sins and faults to prove to itself that it does not deserve it. Then the commotion starts, the intellect works, and the memory ceases. Mind starts working, huh? Indeed, these faculties sometimes tire me out. For though I have very little memory, I cannot keep it under control. Things of the past, huh? The will must quietly and wisely understand that we cannot deal violently with God and that our efforts are like great logs of wood indiscriminately piled on which will only put out the spark. I must admit this and humbly ask, Now, Lord, what can I do? Now comes the third degree of prayer. So she, one of the things that she's here advocating also is the not having a great number of words. Eh? Let us now go on to speak of the third water that feeds this garden, garden, which is flowing water from a stream of spring. This irrigates with far less trouble, though some effort is required to direct it into the right channel. Now, again, the Buddha again and again says, one has deliberately to leave the uh, second jhana behind and direct the mind to the third one, leave the third behind, direct it to the fourth. So, effort is required to direct it into the right channel. But now the Lord is pleased to help the gardener in such a way as to be, as it were, the gardener himself. For it is he who does everything. The faculties of the soul are asleep, not entirely lost, nor yet entirely conscious of how they are working. The pleasure, sweetness and delight are incomparably more than in the previous state. For the water of grace has risen to the soul's neck, and it is powerless, knowing neither how to advance nor to retreat. What it wants is to enjoy its very great glory. It's like a man with a funeral candle in his hand, on the point of dying the death he desires. It takes unutterable delight in the enjoyment of its agony, which seems to me like nothing else but an almost complete death to all the things of this world and the fulfillment in God. A death to all the things in the world, complete contentment, wishlessness. The third jhana. Her, I think, her way of describing this is very lovely. She's very uh, poetic and uh, very simple and also but very poetic and uh, I think she describes it very nicely but I think if one has never done the jhanas one wouldn't have a clue what she's talking about and it's the same with all the mystics one doesn't know what these people are talking about but having done the jhanas is obvious that's all they're talking about because mind human mind all minds human or otherwise are and uh, part of it not quite right. Oh, well, let's see it that way. A part of universal consciousness. There is nothing else. They can't go just because she's Catholic and uh, I'm Buddhist. 
both being Jewish, <laughs> she can't do anything else than what we're doing. It's all one and the same. And I think this is the beauty of it. And if only people had seen this and would see it now, there wouldn't be so much discussion about religion and about um, where people belong to and what they should be doing. That's what people should be doing. There is nothing else to be done because this is what the mind does. And because the mind, and let's just say human mind, that's the one we are concerned with, human mind, has no other way to go. And the description, as you can see, from our standpoint, is a bit fanciful, but it's totally correct. There's absolutely and utterly correct what she's saying. It complies with everything that we know and everything that we have heard in the Buddhist teaching, what I have explained to you, what we know ourselves. It's all one and the same. And Meister Eckhart, now these are the, happen to be the two mystics I know best, Teresa de Villa and Meister Eckhart. And he says exactly the same thing, but his language is so difficult because the German language is difficult as it is. And uh, he spoke in, um, in an old German, which we no longer even understand. And he has been translated into high German and into English. And it's so difficult that we haven't got the access to it that one has to her. But I've also read uh, Jakob Böhme, also German, also extremely difficult. It's the same thing. There is nothing else to be done for the mind. So the... Um, all the um, horrors of the religious wars which are happening now it's not just the inquisition of the crusades that happened then it's not just the um, um, persecution of the Jews under Hitler it's even happening now for instance in the Buddhist country Sri Lanka also can't live together. It's happened in uh, in India, Muslims and Hindus. It's all utter and complete. But what has happened in the world, has always happened, and is of course happening now too, is that it seems that these people somehow or other they got there I don't want to say by accident that's an exaggeration they got there by complete faith love and devotion but still also accident because I mean faith, love and devotion is many people have that and yet there are only a few that have done this everybody can do it Nobody's exempt. Every human mind can do it. So all these uh, religious um, um, discussions and difficulties and now of course we have uh, religious dialogues all over the place. Maybe I should mention or could mention at this stage uh, something that interests me. I don't know if it interests you, but it interests me, so why shouldn't I talk about the things that interest me for a change? <laughs> Um, I gave a talk in, in, uh, at the Oxford uh, University uh, last year 
um, invited by the Eckert Society, which, uh, although Eckert was German, exists only in England. And um, my talk was, as I said, Meister Eckert meets the Buddha, and I showed the um, exact identical experiences, which he, this chap who wrote the book, also shows, and uses the same examples that I use. The Catholic academics, especially one of them, got furious at me after I, s I finished my talk. How I could dare to say that anybody could think and experience the same way as my Eckhart. What was that to say? Nothing. There was nothing to say. What What he is to the Catholic Church, <laughs> this Pope is the first one that ever even allowed the fact that this guy was alive. The <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, he was not excommunicated, which we found out now. Uh, in his, uh, he, he died in the 15th century. He was not excommunicated, but he was considered to be a heretic. And the Catholic Church... Um, never mentioned his name again until this century. And now this Pope actually mentioned him about, I don't know, a few years ago, once. And uh, so... Um, so, uh, is Eckhart, is Dr. Eckhart's society, what are, what are they? Are they Catholics? Yes. They are Catholics. Oh, yes. Well, the Catholics are the only ones that are still religious. The mm -hmm. Protestants have lost it. Completely. Is he considered a saint? No. The church didn't have have not accepted him uh, as uh, even as uh, I mean he was very famous in his day. He was very famous and uh, very very popular and held a very high position in Germany in the Catholic Church. But because he said. I am God and God is me and uh, God only exists because a creature exists which is quite true of course and that behind God there is a Godhead which is of course also true um, the church thought that he was a heretic and have never allowed his teaching to be used in the church but now people are getting a little more interested in him and they talk about him but they can't understand what he says. It's impossible for people who have not done the jhanas to understand what he says. And even for those who have done the jhanas, it's difficult. Because he, is, um, he speaks, I mean, in my opinion, and that's a personal opinion, he was enlightened. And he speaks from an enlightened standpoint. And I mean, that's very difficult to understand for the whole unenlightened church. And uh, so the, um, he has uh, a very small um, circle of interest. And even his pupils, Taula and Suso, who were probably n nearly as great as he was, the teachings are obscure. You can't find hardly can find them. So the whole thing, the whole mysticism in Europe died a painful death because of the fact that the church wouldn't allow it. 
Now she, um, in Spain, I mean, also died a painful death. It wasn't just in Germany. And uh, because of that, it did. Now we have a very small resurrection happening. A very tiny one. And uh, in the Catholic um, Catholic um, um, seminaries, who have learned some what they call Zen meditation and think they might get at it again somehow or other. But uh, it's so small, the resurrection, that it is only like a glimmering. It's nothing, nothing real. So when I was, now today, in this day and age, when I was taught, I mean, to me, the whole talk that I gave was obvious. I mean, that, and it's, it's actually mentioned in here, he's using the same similes, and that's the same, not similes, the same extracts from Eckhart uh, and from Buddhism to show that they're alive, this man here. Um, and I was using that, I mean, Godhead as Nibbana and that sort of thing. And when I gave that talk, and to me it was obvious, you know, that that was the way it was, this man got at the end was furious and asked me whether I would that I had any inkling that Eckhart could um, have been, that the same things could have been thought by anybody else. Not even, he said, Thomas Merton could have thought in the same way as Meister Eckhart, which is quite true because Thomas Merton was not really a mystic. But, um, but um, there was no, no answer. There's nothing you can say to anything like that. And he, but you could hear in his voice that he was violently angry at me. For, for giving, for saying that. And so today, in, we are supposedly in a more enlightened uh, age, which we're not. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, the ownership of something like, like the, the universal consciousness is still being practiced. Everybody owns part of it. And I would suggest that, uh, if you're interested to know what the um, a human mind can do, that you do read some of the mystics, because they they you can see that there's no difference at all. This is the way it is, and the worldly thinking is that which has killed mysticism in the world. And the word mysticism is constantly being confused with mystery. What's mysterious about the jhanas? The Buddha des- described them, the Buddha explained them, then every Pali dictionary, they, anybody can, that meditates can do them. Uh, people do them even without having any instructions. There's nothing mysterious about it. And this is exactly that, except that the, uh, the teaching of it has always been lacking. There's n- never been, I mean, in the Christian church it was always lacking, of course. But uh, even in Buddhism it's always been lacking. lacking. So who knows, one might be able to resurrect something, I don't know. Anyway, I find it very fascinating, this is all one of the same things. So we have already got found out that we're not supposed to think, ah oh, yes, third, third degree, where were we? Ah yes. A death to the world, huh? I mean, there's wishlessness. I know of no other words with which 
to describe or explain it. The soul does not know what to do. It cannot tell whether to speak or to be silent, whether to laugh or to weep. It's a glorious bewilderment, <clears throat> a heavenly madness in which true wisdom is acquired and to the soul of fulfillment most full of delight. Well, the contentment is a fulfillment, the first time of not having any wishes, and insight is acquired, true wisdom is acquired. There's no doubt about it, that through the jhanas insight comes. It is, I believe, five or six years since the Lord first granted me frequent and abundant experience of this sort of prayer, and I have never understood it or been able to explain it. I knew very well that it was not a complete union of all the faculties, and yet it was clearly higher than the previous state of prayer. But I confess that I could not decide or understand where the difference lay. Very often I was, so to speak, bewildered and intoxicated with love, and yet could never understand how it was. I knew very well that this was God's work, but I could never understand the way in which he worked here. In effect, the faculties are in almost complete union, yet not so absorbed that they do not act. There's an observer in, in all three jhanas. I am greatly delighted that I have understood it at last. Blessed be the Lord who has given me this gift. The faculties retain only the power of occupying themselves wholly with God. None of them seems to dare even to stir nor can we make any of them move without great and deliberate effort to fix the attention on some external thing, though I do not think that at such times we can entirely succeed in doing this. Many words are then spoken in praise of the Lord, but they are disorderly unless the Lord himself imposes order on them. The intellect, at any rate, is of no value here. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> The soul longs to pour out words of praise, but it is in sweet it is in a sweet unrest and cannot contain itself. Already the flowers are opening and beginning to give off scent. This state of prayer seems to me a most definite union of the whole soul with God, complete but for the fact that his majesty appears to allow the faculties to be conscious of and to enjoy the great work that he is doing. Sometimes, indeed often, the will being in union, the soul is aware of it and sees that it is rejoicing in its captivity. There is the will alone and abiding in great peace, while the understanding and the memory, on the other hand, are so free that they can attend to business or do works of charity. I tell you this, my father, so that that's your confessor, so that you may see that it can happen and may recognize the experience when it comes to you. She's teaching the confessor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they hated us. They really did. But they couldn't, go, couldn't um, deny what she was saying because they had an inkling that it was truth. Most people know when they hear truth. I mean, there, there are some are completely, of course, without any intellect, but any intelligent person knows when they hear truth. I myself was driven quite frankly by it, and that is why I speak of it here. Although it may appear to be the same, this differs from the prayer of quiet, that was the second jhana, of which I have spoken. In that first state, the soul does not wish to move or stir, but delights in the blessed repose of a Mary, 
whereas in the second state it can be like Martha also. Thus it is, as it were, leading the active and the contemplative life at once, and can apply itself to works of charity, to its professional business, and to reading as well. What she's saying is that she can be contemplative and still work, be active. Yet in this state we are not wholly masters of ourselves, but are well aware that the better part of the soul is elsewhere. That's the cushioning I've been talking about, if you remember, I don't know. Anyway, the, uh, having, having the first three jhanas at one's command, which means that the inner joy and the contentment are available and one has access to them whenever one wishes, there's a cushioning in the world out there. They do not stay with one. The joy and the contentment do not stay in the same way that they do in the meditation, but one feels cushioned against the um, um, difficulties in life because one knows one can get back to it. So she says here that um, one can lead the life, the professional business reading, but one is um, the better part of the soul is elsewhere, which means that there isn't one isn't that um, connected to all the things that are happening out there. They don't make such an impact. It is as if we were speaking to one person while someone else was speaking to us, so that we cannot attend properly to either. Well, I wouldn't say that. I think one can attend properly to either. One just isn't as, um, one doesn't feel the sting of the thing so much. In all these states of prayer that I have described while speaking of this last water, which comes from a spring, the soul's bliss and repose is so great that even the body shares in its joy and delight to a clearly perceptible extent. And the virtues are highly developed also, as I have said. It seems that the Lord has been pleased thus to reveal these states in which the soul may find itself and to do so as clearly, I believe, as it possible here upon this earth. Well, now she comes to the, that the body has also this joy and delight. So, I mean, obviously we're talking about the same things. Now, now that we'll do the fourth one, huh? the fourth jhana, and see what she has to say about that. On the fourth degree of prayer, may the Lord teach me words with which to convey some idea of the fourth water. I shall indeed need his help more now than ever before. In this state, the soul still feels that it is not altogether dead, as we may say, though it is entirely dead to the world. So, in the, the uh, dead to the world, but there's still, of course, the attention is there. But as I have said, it retains the sense to know that it's still here and to feel its solitude. And it makes use of outward manifestation to show its feeling, at least by sign. Throughout, in every stage of the prayer that I've described, the gardener performs some labor. Though in these later stages the labor is accompanied by so much bliss and comfort that the soul would never willingly abandon it. So the labor is not felt as such, but as bliss. It's quite long, actually. Shall I read all of that, or do you want to hear this tomorrow? It's quite a long story about the fourth jhana. You want to hear it? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Here there is no sense of anything but enjoyment without any knowledge of what is being enjoyed. Well, that's right. I mean, there's stillness in the fourth one. The soul realizes that it's enjoying some good thing that contains all good things together, but it cannot comprehend this good thing. <laughs> she really should have had a teacher telling her what's going on. <laughs> All the senses are taking up with this joy so that none of them is free to act in any way, either outwardly or inwardly. Well, there's a real coming together, isn't it, in the fourth one. Previously, as I've said, the senses were permitted to give some indication of the great joy they feel. But now the soul enjoys incomparably more and yet has still less power to show it. Well, that's obviously the fourth one because there's the, the stillness, the absorption which happens in the fourth one there's no power to show anything outwardly so there's no power left in the body and the soul possesses none by which this joy can be communicated at such a time anything of the sort would be a great embarrassment a torment and a disturbance of its repose and if there's really a union of all the faculties I say then the soul cannot make it known even if it wants to well, actually in union, I mean. If it can, then it's not in union. She really has a difficult time explaining this. <laughs> it's, uh, but it's obviously explaining the fourth jhana because it is in uh, the faculties have come together. And so because of the fact that the observer has become so very small, small at that time, she, uh, she also finds it very difficult to explain what's going on. How what is called union takes place and what it is, I cannot tell. It is explained in mystical theology, but I cannot use the proper terms. I cannot understand what mind is or how it differs from soul or spirit. It doesn't. It's all one and the same thing. It does, there's no difference. These are all uh, elaborations of one's own mind to make differences between those. Uh, actually, you can find in Eckhart's writing the word, um, the words soul and mind interchangeable. They all seem one to me. Oh, there you are. Though the soul sometimes leaps out of itself like a burning fire that has become one whole flame and increases with great force, the flame leaps very high above the fire. Nevertheless, it's not a different thing but the same flame which is in the fire. Anyway, she thinks it's all one and the same, which is quite right. What I want to explain is the soul's feelings when it is in this divine union. It is plain enough what union is. In union, two separate things become one. I am now speaking of that rain that comes down abundantly from heaven to soak and saturate the whole garden. The heavenly rain very often comes down when the gardener least expects it, just as is true that at the beginning it almost always comes after long mental prayer. Mental prayer is the kind of prayer where the, um, the mind makes up ideas uh, how to pray. And before that, before the mental prayer, is the verbal prayer that's like... Uh, um, a, a verbal prayer which is um, just repeating the words and the mental prayer of making it up oneself and only after that 
overcomes these four stages of prayer that she's describing here. So she has to, she says a long period of mental prayer before she can get into this. Then as one stage succeeds another, the Lord, ta- Lord takes up this small bird and puts it into the nest where it may be quiet. He has watched it fluttering for a long time, trying with its understanding and its will and all its strength to find God and please him, and now he's pleased to give it its reward in this life. And what a reward! One moment of it is enough to repay all the trials it can ever have endured. So, found a home for the mind, found a nest for the little bird. While seeking God in this way, the soul is conscious that it is fainting almost completely away in a kind of swoon, with a very great calm and joy. Its breath and all its bodily powers progressively fail it. Well, the breath isn't failing the body. I mean, we know that, otherwise we'd be dead. But it becomes so fine that we can't find it. Its eyes close involuntarily, and if they remain open, they see almost nothing. If a person reads in this state, he can scarcely make out a single letter. It is as much as he can do to recognize one. He sees that there are letters, but as the understanding offers no help, he cannot read them, even if he wants to. He hears, but does not understand what he hears. In the same way, his senses serve no purpose except to prevent the soul from taking its pleasure, and so they tend to do him harm. So one should be without, uh, secluded from sensual desires, huh? no sense contact. It is the same with the tongue, for he cannot form a word, nor would he have the strength to pronounce one. The whole physical strength vanishes, and the strength of the soul increases for the better enjoyment of this bliss. The outward joy that is now felt is great and most perceptible. However long this prayer lasts, it does no harm. Now the word prayer is a bit misleading because most people think that prayer is verbalization of any sort, but it isn't that at all. I mean, she's really talking about this, what they, what she calls the union, the union, but what it really amounts to is that she's talking about the jhanas. And she has done the mental prayer to start with, which has given her the concentration. She starts out with a mental prayer on the, to get concentration. And I have once visited a Carmelite, I mean, I've visited a Carmelite nunnery many times, but once I was um, um, fortunate enough to meet a nun there who had been there in seclusion for 20 years, and uh, a Dutch nun. <laughs> in Indonesia, huh? In Indonesia, yes. And uh, I asked her about the prayer, what she did, because I had already read uh, Teresa and wanted to know if they were still doing it. And in some of the Carmelite nunneries, they actually do do these things. But um, most of them, they don't. Well, this one was doing it. And her face looked like she was doing the jhana. So I asked her, and she explained these uh, stages of prayer to me. And she said, but she had never got to, she didn't say the fourth one, but she said she had never gone to the highest one, which was complete union. But she had explained the first stages of this. And she also explained the uh, first the verb, verbal prayer and then the mental prayer. So she said that they use these, uh, the mental prayer in the beginning, that they very rarely use the verbal prayer, which are the, um, you know, ex- the um, usual kind of things, 
Father, I will that you are in heaven, that sort of thing. They hardly ever use that. They use the mental prayer, which is they make up their own words and then go into this. So that's their way of concentrating, how to get concentrated. But I have been to other Carmelite nunneries where none of this is happening. They read Teresa's books, but don't know what to do with it. Nothing. So it's, uh, this was unusual. That particular nun was unusual. Um, where were we? Bodily strength. So they're now, outward or so. Wait a minute. However long. Ah. It, uh, at least it has never done me any. The prayer has never done her any harm. However ill I might have been when the Lord granted me this grace, I never remember an occasion when I experienced any bad effects from it. On the contrary, I was left feeling much better. But what harm can so great a blessing possibly do? The outward results are so evident that there can be no doubt some great thing has taken place. Nothing else could have robbed us of our bodily strength, yet have given us so much joy that its return to us increased the bodily strength is returned, increased. In other words, the energy has now been uh, really generated. And I've, the fourth jhana is a generator of energy, just as the eighth jhana is. Let us now come to, she says, the bodily strength is returned to us, increased. Let us now come to the soul's inward sensations in this condition. <coughs> this should be spoken of by those who know them, for as they are beyond understanding, so are they beyond description. Well, the understood experience girl. I was wondering when I decided to write this, <coughs> after taking communion and experiencing the state of prayer of which I'm writing, how the soul is occupied at that time. And then the Lord said to me, It dissolves utterly, my daughter to rest more and more in me. It's no longer itself that lives, it is I. As I cannot comprehend what it understands, it understands by not understanding. Ooh. As it cannot comprehend what it understands, it understands by not understanding. Hmm. Understands by not understanding. Anyone who has experienced this will to some extent understand. It cannot be expressed more clearly since all that happens is so obscure. I can only say that the soul conceives itself to be near God and that it is left with such a conviction that it cannot possibly help believing. All the faculties are in abeyance. That's true. And so suspended, as I have said, that the operations cannot be followed. If the soul has previously been meditating on any subject, it vanishes from the memory at once, as completely as if it had never been thought of. If it has been reading, it is unable to remember it or dwell on the words. And it is the same with vocal prayer. Ah, sorry, not verbal prayer, vocal prayer, that's what it's called. Same with vocal prayer. So the restless little moth of the memory has its wings burned and can flutter no more. The will must be fully occupied in loving, but does not understand how it loves. If it understands, it does not understand how it understands, or at least cannot comprehend anything of what it understands. I do not think that it understands at all, because as I have said, it does not understand itself. 
nor can I myself understand this. Well, the problems that she's facing is the fact that the uh, in the fourth jhana, the uh, stillness and the absence of the sense, sense faculties also to brings with it the absence of an observer, the almost complete absence, not total, but the almost complete absence of the observer. So the, since the observer is the one who knows, there's nobody there who knows. But since we are in the lucky position to know what the Buddha said about it, we can, after coming out of the fourth jhana, recognize the fact that we've been in a complete stillness where the observer was also almost stilled. And we don't have to worry about whether we understand anything or not because there's nothing there to be understood. What is there to be understood when the mind just gets still finally and and, uh, conclusively? The thing that she does know is that she has regenerated her energy, that the the, uh, soul or the mind is enjoying what she's what it's doing and that that her the senses are not functioning and that she also says that the memory is not functioning but the memory doesn't have anything to remember at that time so because there's no teaching there and because this fourth one is difficult to recognize she doesn't really know exactly what's happening to her. And the way, the reason she is accepted as it is, because there's nobody that can say, well, it's not the way it is. I mean, she has nobody that can refute what she says. Now, St. John of the Cross, we'll see him tomorrow, see what he has to say. Um, He is an ascetic, and uh, he is more into mortifying and all the rest of this, uh, mortifying the body and mortifying the mind and that kind of thing but he also uh, talks about a spiritual betrothal so he has um, also has the experiences of the jhanas it's impossible to write the things these people do without having these experiences and because they always have to bring them into contact uh, con- sorry, context with the theology that they've been taught, we find in an awful lot of verbiage, which is totally unnecessary, of course, and makes it so much more difficult to understand because they have to make a context out of it which seems reasonable to them and understandably so because that's what they've been taught. But the Buddha didn't do that. The Buddha didn't have any context that he had to make reasonable. He just said, well, this is the way it is and then you just do this and you do that so it's much simpler we have the, we are in the lucky position where it's much simpler but we're doing exactly the same thing well the reason I read this to you because as I said I find it fascinating that there's only one way for the mind to go meditation is science of mind and science of mind has to be uh, available to every mind repeatable at will and has to be um, exact. The inexactness of Teresa is um, due to the fact that they didn't have anything 
that they could uh, use as a guideline and still don't unfortunately we are very happy to share if anybody wants it so anybody have anything they want to say about this no she didn't have any uh, Eckhart, yes. I don't know that I don't know all of them but Eckhart definitely no question about in my mind that's my personal opinion um, from all the uh, readings I've done in his, uh, from his prayers he speaks from an enlightened standpoint from the word go I mean he, he sees it from, from that level whereas I mean it may be due to the fact that in those days women weren't supposed to write such things I don't know but um, no there's no past moment no past moment uh, she does come to some very um, strong union she, these are only four she has seven mansions actually it's not right seven mansions she's got seven chambers in the man in the beautiful mansion um, and it does get much more exalted still this is only the fourth one it does get more exalted and she has this um, marriage the marriage with, with Christ which is an experience but um, it certainly doesn't sound like a past moment to me because she doesn't also doesn't express a fruit moment afterwards at least I haven't found it yet I haven't read everything from her yet there may be who knows but it's, I, I, I doubt very much that this was possible for Eckhart yes I mean he was free and they were behind walls and had all sorts of difficulties I mean, she had a very difficult life, extremely difficult. It's amazing that she lived as long as she did. She died at 68, by the way. Yes, quite natural. <laughs> I think she had uh, pneumonia or something, or something very natural. <laughs> but she'd been ill all her life. She was, a, was uh, not a very robust person. She was ill all her life constant illness so uh, no I haven't found any past moment but I, and I doubt very much that there are any but as I say I haven't read everything maybe I will find some in Eckhart there's no doubt but you can't describe past moment you can only describe fruit moment Böhme Jakob Böhme Böhme Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> B-O-E-H-M-E. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but he's also very difficult. Very difficult to understand. She's the easiest. And that's why she's also most popular for reading. He was actually a Protestant. And in those days, or well, Burma is later, the Reformation.
and today also, I mean, what I know in in uh, yeah, well, in Europe, those that are still having a religious life and um, a great deal of um, um, faith and devotion is always Catholic. And those that want dialogue with us, with Buddhists, also Catholic. Protestants don't want any part of us. <laughs> And it's very unfortunate. It's really, really interesting. So we had a, um, um, there's a, what do you call it, a day of all religions, or uh, what is it, universal, universal prayer day, universal prayer day. Uh, it was inaugurated at the uh, meeting at uh, Assisi. No, not in Assisi. Was it in Assisi? Where did the Pope was it in Assisi or was it at, uh, at Lourdes? At Assisi, wasn't it? Yes, where the Pope met the uh, Dalai Lama and, uh, and, and all the, some other dignitaries they met there in 1987, I think. And that day has been designated as Universal Prayer Day. And uh, there's an American outfit who uh, sort of propagates that. So I, I thought, well, that sounds good. So um, we... Uh, we went to the mayor of the little town near where, near Buddha House and, uh, you know, asked him whether he'd be interested and he was very interested. I said, yes, we'll do this. So we'll get all the religions together and we have a day, you know, or, or an evening in church with all the religions. So he got the Catholic uh, priest to give his church and uh, we found the Sufis and uh, we were the Buddhists, and the Protestants said, we will have no part in this. <laughs> and since they couldn't find any Jews there, I said, well, I'll come to you as a, <laughs> as a Jew and a Buddhist. <laughs> so I, I took both roles. <laughs> it was a great success. <laughs> Well, they got quite angry, of course. No, they don't say anything like that. They just said they don't want any part of this, and uh, they even threatened the mayor that they wouldn't vote for him if he did it. <laughs> and he said, oh, the hell with them. I don't remember. What was it that they said? They don't want to do it. They think it's a terrible thing to do or a bad thing to do. I don't remember what they said. What is this? Yeah. No, they didn't say that. I mean, you don't go around saying these things in, 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 uh, openly. But if you don't want to take part in something like that, obviously you don't want to be in ecumenical uh, uh, dialogue. You know? I mean, they don't go and saying that these people are bad, you know, but they say, no, we don't want any part of this. And they got it, went as far as threatening the mayor. But he wouldn't have, he wasn't to be threatened. And uh, later on, they, they came around, actually, and uh, said, oh, well, you should have let us know, we would have come, you know, <laughs> after they'd done all the other things. So, um, it's, you know, the same today as it's always been. But there is a little... So, as far as the Catholics are concerned, there seems to be 
uh, an opening, an opening of, uh, of, yes, of heart and mind. It's still not complete, but it is something. We had a, there was a huge um, Buddhist Christian dialogue at the University of California in Berkeley in 88 or 87, I don't know, I remember anymore. And um, there were people from all over the world. I was one of a panel, and um, (laughs) I went to listen to them. I picked out, you know, there were so many talks being given that you couldn't listen to all of them, it was impossible. But I picked out those topics which I thought was most interesting. And I remember going to one of the Christian talks, and it was something about a void, or, yes, a void, a void in Christianity or something like that. I can't remember the title. Anyway, it sounds very interesting. I did not understand a single word. Not one single word. I do speak English fairly well. And the man was speaking English. I couldn't understand what he was on about. So when it was all finished, he asked whether there were any questions. And I said, um, I said, well, yes, uh, I want to ask me. He said, yeah, what is it? And I said, well, I said, did you just explain the, um, the dogma of the church or did you explain your own views? And he said, both. And I said, well, could you put that in a nutshell again and just say what your own views are. And he did it again, in a nutshell. And we, again, I can understand <laughs> the word. And uh, I said, oh, well, yes, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not quite understanding. Anyway, um, I went outside, and I had three ladies came behind me who would also listen. And they said, boy, we were glad you said that. We didn't understand the word either. <laughs> I went, it was just, I don't know, how would they talk? It was just impossible to understand. But mind you, the same happened with the Buddhists. Exactly the same. There was a whole bunch of Japanese Buddhists there, highly uh, scholarly. One is very famous, I've forgotten his name, something with an A, it starts with an A. Uh, (laughs) I couldn't understand him either. I walked out. I I couldn't understand a word. And this was Buddhism. Now, granted, he had an accent, but still, I mean, I'm used to accents. I, I hope So that's supposed to be Christian Buddhist dialogue. I, I, I think because they don't understand each other, they can't have any arguments or something like that. <laughs> but in my case, I didn't understand either one of them. So then... Uh, I, I, then it was uh, suggested to me that I should give some meditation instructions, which I did. And um, were you there? Did you come to that? No. Oh, you missed something. It was really interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, which I did. And there was a very beautiful chapel there. It's right on the campus of the university, the religion department. And a lovely little chapel. So we, I, you know, set myself down. And there were so many poured in from all sides. You know, and I don't know, of course, whether they were Christian or Buddhist or what they were, it didn't matter. Anyway, I, they came every day. That's what they really wanted. They wanted to learn meditation. They really, all of them liked that a lot. I mean, I did this loving kindness meditation. And, you know, it's a simple thing to do, and I told them to watch the breath. And in the end, we had standing room only. You know, so th- that, was, that was really fascinating to them, to learn the meditation. They really liked that. 
And then, of course, um, I got some competition. Christians also started meditation. <laughs> but that was fine, because uh, then, you know, they, they all did it. And that was every day for the, this went on for a week, so we did that every day. And uh, the Christian had meditation, but they did it differently. I don't know exactly how they did it, but I did it also every day. And that was nice. That brought people together, because obviously there were Buddhists and Christian and, 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 and people who had nothing to do with it. So that was the togetherness in that. But the talks, I don't know. I didn't understand what they were saying. But anyway, there is an there is a there is an uh, uh, an upsurge of this. We have it in Germany constantly. We have these ecumenical things. I'm I'm going to be back in Germany on the first of May. On the seventh of May, I'm going to teach as a Catholic Bildungswerk. What's that in English? Catholic. Uh, a Catholic uh, uh, education uh, week, Catholic youth education week. Uh, I was invited to go there. I like.